Welcome to Chief Evangelist. I'm your host, Ethan Butte. I'm on a mission to explore and understand the role of the Chief Evangelist and the movement behind it. How should founders, investors, and C-suites be thinking about it? How does it benefit the company? Which companies and markets need evangelism most? What does the work involve? What does success look like? And who's a good fit as a chief evangelist? That's what we're exploring at chiefevangelist.com and in conversations like this one, which is brought to you by Ringmaster Conversational Marketing and their evangelist-powered podcasting package. Learn more at ringmaster.com. Today, we're learning from the co-founder and CEO of Audience Plus, a team that's building software, content, and community to help every company become a media company. He served as founding CMO at Gainsight, CMO at Front, and CMO at Hopin. He's also the author of Category Creation, How to Build a Brand That Customers, Employees, and Investors Will Love. Anthony Canada, welcome to Chief Evangelist. Thanks, Ethan. Excited to be here. Yeah, me too. I think there's so many, um, you know, I'm trying to bring in people who have a lot to say or who have some depth of thought and experience and expression around some core ideas adjacent to evangelism. So we'll definitely kick off around category creation. Uh, One of the definitions you offered in the book includes the concept of evangelizing. So we'll kind of get into what that means. But I think there's also a lot to be learned from you that's going to be very relevant to folks around this idea of owned media media companies, et cetera. So this could be two or three conversations in one. Uh, but I want to start where we always start, Anthony, which is uh, evangelism. When I, uh, what is the most important job of an evangelist uh, in your view? Yeah. You know, I think that the one of the amazing things about evangelists is not only are they, you know, professionals who can create content, who can speak, who, who have their own, in, in many cases, existing followerships or networks that they can kind of launch into, but they have done the job before. They are, are part of the, th- they have sort of equity in the conversation that they are leading. And so I think authenticity to me is, is what it is. It's saying like, you know, not only am I, you know, professionally, you know, aligned around these job, these responsibilities and requirements and all of this, but I am one of you um, as you speak into the audience or as you write this, your, your content. And so that's, I think what, what separates maybe, I, th- I think we might talk about this, like an evangelist from a creator or something to that end is there's a depth of, of authenticity and subject matter expertise that I think is, is, is so valuable and so effective when communicating that out into the, into the broader marketplace. So good. I like so much of what you shared there, particularly this idea that I am one of you. Um, It's it's language that we haven't heard in this portion (laughs) of these conversations so far, and we're pretty deep in already. Um, For the sake of beating up the obvious, why does that authenticity matter? Why does that equity or the investment in the ideas and the behavior, the the concepts, why does it matter um, in, let's just say, sales and marketing and, yeah. you know, this, this zone, why does it matter so much today yeah. and going forward? I think for, for many reasons, first um, people don't buy from companies, they buy from people. And I think that's one thing that we've underappreciated and underinvested in, and especially in the B2B context of marketing, where so much has been like feature function, you know, a type of positioning, which is all important, you know, stuff we need, we need to do, but ultimately people want to buy from, 
uh, or as products sort of become somewhat commoditized, not not completely, um, the real differentiation is the people and the brand and sort of the 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 sort of aura around the company that you're creating. And so um, that I think presents an opportunity for someone to, to really kind of position the human beings at the company out into the world and have them be a compelling reason for people to join and, and the, or people to sign up as customers. The second kind of component to it is kind of in that same vein, customers are looking for more than just products to become part of their solution. So surely our products play a big role in that, but I often think of the AP psychology, Maslow's hierarchy of needs type of a thing. We're all on this path to self-actualization in our careers, you know, within our companies and, and beyond it. And what evangelists help do is actually bring um, that sort of the best practices and the, the content that wraps around our products to help our customers, our prospects, whoever on this path to self-actualization. So um, if you don't have someone, if you don't, if you're not investing in thought leadership, if you're not investing in content marketing, if you don't have someone who has that authentic content and relation uh, context and relationship with the broader market, you're missing a big opportunity to um, really differentiate from a marketplace of products that are on a well on a path towards commoditization. Absolutely. I think um, in, certainly in software, certainly commoditization software, yeah. is a thing, right? There are some yeah. unique perspectives and um, different ways people build. And I'm kind of bleeding into category a little bit. Yeah. Um, but certainly, uh, features and benefits are not differentiators in any meaningful way. I mean, I just think about what we do at BombBomb and, you know, if we launch something, someone else could knock it off in a month or perhaps even a week or yeah. even a couple of yeah. days, depending on what it is. And then you put it up on the site. It's like, we have that too. We do that yeah. too. We do, And a lot of that gets mischaracterized, but I, you know, the relatability in addition to like the educational components, the idea that I can feel a particular way about a brand because I'm not quite sure how to feel. I mean, certainly UI, UX all has a lot to do with it. Customer experience and product experience has a lot to do with how I feel about the company and the brand. But the human element, I think, um, brings something that's instant and automatic in terms of the way we feel about yeah. a situation uh, beyond all the educational stuff. So I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk category with you is, of course, you wrote a book called category creation. But I think um, what I think that one of the reasons you include evangelism, I think it was mentioned maybe eight or 10 times in the book. I didn't actually technically count, but it's definitely <laughs> in that zone. I'd be right. surprised if I was off by two either way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's this idea that, that there's some innovation going on, right? There's there's a way that there's something we've seen in the market. We've some something we've seen in the world. Not everyone sees it this way. We're innovating. We're out ahead of the curve on it. And so um, there's an opportunity to, to position the problem and the opportunity yeah. differently. This is essentially part of category creation and evangelism has a role there. So um, speak to that however you like, characterize category creation, yeah. innovation, evangelism, like tie that together however you like and kind of spin yeah. off from there for a few minutes. Awesome. So, you know, when I think of category creation, one of the sort of textbook definitions is unlike a disruption playbook, um, which is more standard within, at least again, the technology industry, um, with category creation, you're positioning more than just your products or positioning a problem that people may or may not recognize that they have. Um, and when you start sort of talking about that problem, 
um, you find that you have an early a, a set of early adopters that um, believe and and they resonate deeply with that problem. And typically, at least in category creation, it's not a huge group. It grows over time, but it's a smaller cohort of an audience that says, "I I read I have that same problem." Finally, someone's talking about it, and they're drawn to you you as a brand. So what your job, so by the way, that being a small group, it actually tends to be a fairly lonely group because they are, they don't have budget to actually go and purchase the, the solution there. It might be, they might be sort of, sort of uh, evangelizing in a way internally within their organization. But since it's so novel and new of an idea, they actually don't have, you know, a lot of the championing, the champion and, and, and buy-in to, and maybe even a voice or a seat at the table to actually drive that project forward and so what do they do they tune into you as the brand that's kind of leading leading the charge um and so there's a responsibility for companies especially at the early stage but as you grow as well to kind of carry the torch for this new idea carry the torch for the new um um not just the new solution but really this new kind of the idea in and of itself and evangelism plays a massive role in that, especially in, in, as you, as you know, we talked about the authentic kind of component and someone that's like, I've been you, I've been the one who wasn't heard, who didn't have the budget, who didn't have the seat at the table, you know, and now I'm out here kind of helping champion and, and advance the interest of this, of our profession, of our shared needs. And the super interesting thing is um, what I've seen across industry is the sort of like, compounding effect of community building and audience building and by doing that relentlessly especially in the early days the audience naturally grows and you find you have more and more people that are opting in to that relationship and eventually you know the 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 industry becomes sort of formed so all that to be said the need for a brand to stand for something to kind of develop that emotional connection with an audience and to relentlessly champion it. Having someone who has come from that world gives you so much brand equity as a company, first of all, to say, we're not just like this startup that's you know seed funded, never done it before, whatever. Oftentimes it could be a technologist you know, that's come in to, to build this company, or it could be a young, who knows, right? There's many reasons where credibility might be called into question, but if you have, you know, I'll call some of your previous guests, a guy, Kawasaki, a Dan Steinman and Ethan, like on board to help actually bring your brand equity into this new market and to together build it. Very powerful um, combination. Really good. First of all, thank you for roping me in with those two gentlemen. <laughs> That's very polite of you to do. It's funny. I mean, the way that you describe that, I think so much about what we did. And you even said this in uh, category creation, which is anchored on your experience uh, at, uh, at Gainsight and a lot of the best practices and learnings. We don't need to walk through all that again. I just encourage people, if you want a, a more practical playbook than some of the theoretical stuff around category design and category creation, uh, Anthony's book, Category Creation, is um, is really good there. And uh, what you triggered for me was a lot of this stuff. And I think I'm picking up on Mark Oregon. He referred to like the freaks, <laughs> you know, oh, like yeah. the, like the oh, early yeah. people that, that are very um, uh, tied into this idea. And it, when I think about uh, my experience at BombBomb, super early days. So I've been at the company almost a dozen years, well, 11 and a half, 
which is insane in hindsight. And when you think about what video email and video messaging was in 2011, when I joined full-time and the company was legally founded in 06, like it wasn't a thing. And right. so a lot of our earliest customers were like, well, I used to do it this way and that way. And then I found this other early tool, but that tool had no like real backing, you know, it wasn't financially sound. It was never going to really go anywhere, but it was enough for the people who shared this idea of how can we make digital communication asynchronous digital communication, a little bit warmer and more personal, like you find those people and then you feature them in the blog posts. Yeah. Uh, you, you invite them onto webinars, you share their examples and it just grows and grows and grows from there. And the interesting yeah. thing is um, I observed, and I'll give it back to you for whatever this triggers for you. Um, these people saw the world similarly. They believed some of the similar things, but they had never articulated it. And there was no yeah. rallying point, right? It's like, I never had language for this idea. I never had language for this desire. I never had language for this itch. And now here you are, people with a product and a small following and I can join it. And then now that lights me up further. And so I'm just picking up on your torch uh, carrying yeah. um, to now talk about it and teach it to other people. And I'm thinking about like the first three to five years, not a month went by when I didn't meet another customer who was like, oh yeah, I teach workshops on this all the time. I taught everyone in my office this thing. And you, I think you already mentioned it. You certainly do in the book is, um, you know, I left this company and I took it to this company and now everyone over here is excited about it too. Yeah. So um, you really related to what you shared there. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the big um, aha for me, I guess, was that we we can do a lot as a company to put ourselves in a position to create a category. But at the end of the day, the customer actually creates the category. And so the question is, how can we rope those folks in um, based on that passion? Because it, to, your, to your point, there is this impassioned like draw towards the rallying point. And I think the the challenge for a company is to build the stage. Like we don't want to be the ones always leading the conversation, but we just want to be the place where the conversation happens. Um, so a very tactical example is, you know, we did this conference, we, the company must have been, at least in its, its next iteration, three or four months old, and we did a conference called Pulse. Um, and, you know, there's no way we could have stood on stage and be like, here is what customer success will look like in the future and trust us and whatever. Thankfully, we did have an evangelist that did a little bit of that. But we, you know, did the opening keynote and the welcome and Dan came up and said some things, but then we turned the mic over to members of the, of the community and let them kind of share their stories and share what they're learning and share their best practices. And that was this very powerful kind of moment um, where you could almost feel the, the energy in the room of people just being like, oh my gosh, I'm finally around my, my tribe. I'm finally around other people that are thinking about things the way I am. So if you're a brand that can create that sort of emotional kind of moment um, and think about your thought leadership platform as this sort of stage where others kind of participate, it's a super, super powerful concept. Yeah, for fun, I'm going to read your own words back to you. We've concluded over the years that hands down Pulse is the single most important program that Gainsight runs in terms of expanding the TAM of the category, driving growth of the company, as well as advancing the company's relationship and leadership equity with customers, investors, and employees. It really, I mean, it, it's almost a version of the subtitle there, yeah. uh, blended with the word love, which is, um, and I've experienced the same thing. We've only done one live event at BombBomb, but every single speaker was a practitioner. Uh, yeah. Every single one of them spoke for free. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And it was this like true, like tribal bring to life scenario. And I think this, um, this type of connection uh, is set the scene for us on where we are in turn. I'm going really broad now and we're broad how to, uh, um, you know, I think that the playbook that we all saw from, let's just say 2015 to 2020 uh, or even 2012 to 2018, whatever window we want to make up here of, you know, write the content, optimize it, um, put it on social, run some paid ads to support it, capture email addresses, nurture, convert, mm-hmm. et cetera. Like it's, it feels like it's breaking down. You know, it doesn't really matter who you listen to or who you read. I think there's a background theme in popular conversation around these themes that the B2B marketing, B2B sales and marketing playbook is is tired in a lot of different ways. Um, I think evangelism fits here. Um, So does owned media. Just kind of set that scene. Like, I guess I'm asking you now to describe a unique problem you saw when you had the the seeds of audience plus in your mind. Um, Set that scene a little bit for us. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of what we talked about today was this broader um, mindset shift. And at least for, again, the, the, the B2B context where, you know, we, we need to appreciate that people buy things emotionally. We don't buy things completely based off of a checklist. Um, and that's fairly well understood. Simon Sinek and others have, have spent a lot of time and research talking about that. Um, and so I think what we're seeing now is this, and, and by the way, folks in the consumer marketing world have understood this for years. If you're at the you know, point of sale and it's Pepsi or Coke and you reach for one, there's something emotional about which, which one you reach for, right? Um, and so the consumer world has put a lot of thought and years of investment into this. In the B2B context, we really haven't. Um, and a lot of, you know, you mentioned this kind of shift from a more transactional way to build an audience, engage an audience. You know, we write a bunch of content for an algorithm, typically not for human. We want it to rank on social, uh, rank on Google. We want it to go viral on social, all of those things. So we hack it and we kind of manipulate the content to try to make it fit what Google's looking for. And all in the spirit of driving qualified traffic and inbound demand and all that sort of stuff. And it worked for a long time, honestly, for the time time you mentioned there. You know, a lot of great companies kind of blossomed through that strategy. Um, but we're moving to this more relational way to go to market. Um, and I think that's sort of this tension we now feel. And again, we've seen it before in other industries, but it hasn't yet made its way over to our world. That's finally starting to break. Um, and I think what we've noticed is several things. One, capturing people's attention is just so hard. Um, you know, we're doing podcasts, we're doing live streams, we're hosting live events. We're trying to use those rented channels to distribute the content and, and, and those experiences and break through the noise. And it's just getting harder and harder to, to push the boundaries of our creativity through these different formats. Um, then when we try to distribute the content, typically we'll use paid media to do that. Well, paid's getting really expensive and really competitive against a very small subset of keywords. And so, and even when we do use those channels, as we highlighted earlier, that's that cohort of lead doesn't really convert all the way through the funnel, typically, at least at the same clip as some of these more brand content community type of more val- a, more of a value exchange than the sort of transactional way of acquiring leads. And so folks are moving away or they're re kind of focusing their paid budget, especially in 2023, where efficiency is, is the name of the game. 
Um, our relationship with social media is changing. Uh, Twitter's in the news a lot, at least at the time of recording. Um, you know, the way we're realizing, and this started really with like the creator economy and others, our ability to generate organic reach off of our content is limited by an algorithm that we don't control. Um, and, and I'm, you know, sort of facing this actually in the last 24 hours quite a bit. So I'm smiling a little bit here. Um, and so folks are saying, look, we can't just build our house on some of these rented channels. We need to own our audience. We need to have a direct channel, a direct line of communication into them, especially in a world where third-party cookies are going away. You know, we need to build a first-party audience, first-party data set, and then use that data to drive the business forward. And so tying that, tying that back to um, this idea of evangelism, you know, and what we sort of did at Gainsight, you know, and category creation in general, like this idea of, of saying, we want to be a champion of an idea, not just a provider of software. And as we do that, we need to educate an audience around that idea. We need to inspire them, in some cases, entertain them, you know, and really become, aspire to almost become like a lifestyle brand for our industry. We want to be the place that people go for a conversation. And in doing so, that manifests itself in basically folks who are subscribing for your thought leadership. They want to be a part of your newsletter. They want to go to the conference. They want to, you know, join that digital experience, you know, where they get to get some of their questions answered and feel like they belong to something. And that's, I think, the big kind of paradigm shift is um, how can we subscribe more of our audience into an owned audience where we can understand what content is resonating with them and what formats um, you know, what topics, you know, all of these things that help us become better evangelists. Like we might find that, you know, like CXOs from fortune 500 companies that we're targeting, like don't listen to, don't, don't read blog posts. They listen to podcasts exclusively. Okay. Well, that's helpful. And they really care about these four topics. Like how can we create more of that content? And then of course, how can we, uh, I think you want, we want to hit on this at some point, but how can you actually measure the impact of evangelism? Um, how can I prove the impact of my work? And with an owned audience and an owned data set, we can actually tie back, you know, impact and ROI to a lot of our effort. So I think that's where the world is, is shifting. And I think the good news for folks in marketing is not only are there's a sort of perfect storm brewing of all of these trends that are making an owned audience the kind of way to move forward as a marketing organization. But beyond that, it will enable a relational go-to-market that feels good too. So we'll be able to finally do something that actually feels right um, and also generates business results. Um, and I think it's a really exciting um, kind, of, kind of time from that perspective. Hey, thanks for listening to Chief Evangelist. For so many reasons, podcasting is a great opportunity and channel for evangelism. If you've been thinking about a podcast or you wanna shift production and promotion to a team that's especially evangelist friendly, check out ringmaster.com. Their Connect, Engage, Scale program is designed for evangelist-powered podcasting for software and tech companies in the growth stage. Again, you can learn more at ringmaster.com. They're also the team behind this podcast. Speaking of chief evangelist, let's get back to it. Absolutely it is. I, I find it very refreshing. Um, I love the B to H language that you use throughout the book around these themes. I like this idea of relational go to market. Um, I, I would also point folks to, uh, with regard to emotional decision-making, Daniel Kahneman 
uh, thinking fast and slow system one system two, uh, Dan Hill, who I've had on uh, my other podcast three times now, he's kind of an EQ expert, 95 to 98% of our mental activity is sensory and emotive. And so this idea of our feelings guiding our conscious and subconscious thoughts, the vast majority of those thoughts are subconscious again, 95 to 98%. I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg to all of the activity below the waterline. We're not even aware of the way that we make decisions, but as you pointed out, science tells us. And so um, I'll just link it back to one more thing. We will definitely have the attribution conversation. (laughs) Because I think it mat- it comes up every time because yeah. people struggle with it. Um, some of the folks I've already had on the show or episodes are released aren't even evangelists anymore. And this is like yeah. part of that 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 challenge for them. Um, but uh, but but this idea of attention, right? Like as he ten- as attention becomes harder to get uh, mm-hmm. in a very, very noisy and even polluted digital environment, um, all these channels are noisy, which I regard as benign. It's just the sheer volume of opportunities the sheer volume of people paying and trying to get your attention. I think part of the problem of the old playbook is that a lot of it was attention oriented, right? Like I'm going to do what I need to, to get attention, but they didn't work it all the way through to like the real, like, I don't think we're in an attention economy. I think we're in a trust economy and that attention Mm -hmm. is just its necessary precursor. And so one of the reasons I love this relational approach, one of the reasons I think evangelists and evangelism matter is that as we devise new ways to get attention, we're doing it as the precursor to the real thing, which is trust, which is based in all the things you've already described, which is, um, I am one of you. Um, I have experienced myself. I'm sharing the stage and platform with other people. Uh, you're going to learn here. You're going to feel a sense of belonging here. We have a shared sense of purpose and belief here. Yeah. And when you seek attention for the purpose of inviting people into that, It it works way better. And so um, I agree with you on this vision. Talk a little bit, close the gap for folks and and don't be afraid to um, dumb it down uh, a little bit if, uh, because I think a lot of people don't understand this yet. And it's one of those things like evangelism or category that uh, people don't really want to raise their hand and say, I don't understand what you mean when you say this. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, talk about how important owned is and this idea of first party because third party is going away and, yeah. um, and, and, and then build that bridge that you kind of teased off the back end there, which is um, how will first party help us kind of close the gap a little bit on how does the work that we do matter? How can we kind of yeah. quantify some of the results? Great question. So we marketers have been in the business of buying or earning relationship, um, buying it through paid ads, worse buying lists and of contacts, um, and you know sending people emails or like throwing them into a nurture campaign until the smallest signal of like maybe they might have clicked on accident on a pricing page or something, and then we spam them with offers to buy our product. And it's no surprise they unsubscribe. That's kind of been the, the paid kind of motion for us. And then on the earn side, we use social media and we try to, you know, basically siphon that followership into an email database that we can, um, that we can use to, to build that direct relationship. So we've always required what, what I call rented intermediaries, rented relationships to get access to an audience. And you know, I think that's all good and well, but what happens when the rented channels break or go out of business or get more competitive or expensive? We find that we've built 
our entire go-to-market, our entire business, our entire ability to actually hit our pipeline targets or revenue on someone else's territory, on someone else's turf. And there's a lot of, you know, we talk about trust, a lot of trust that we don't know that we're making in those moments to actually be able to scale. And we saw with, you know, complications with Twitter and things this year that like, we just, we just major changes can happen in the blink of an eye. And they're in the best interest of those networks and channels, which are ad networks, if we're being honest, right? So that, that is one major kind of starting point to say, well, the most important currency for a marketing team is the email address. Um, because when somebody subscribes to your brand, they're basically saying, I want to hear more from you. Like, I'm not trying to buy something necessarily. I, I, I love this topic. I belong, I, or I want to belong. I want to get educated. I want to learn. And that value exchange is a very important one that I think we've sort of, again, like, you know, de-emphasized within the marketing stack in favor of slinging demos for our sales team or whatever, which again is important, but I think there's a better way to get there. Um, now, all that, again, talk, we talk, I used the word language of a perfect storm earlier, that all sort of started happening organically. The other thing that happened, a big compelling event, is there have been some major changes to data privacy laws, particularly around third-party cookies. And this is actually a great thing for consumers because if you've ever been on in Amazon and you like saw like a listing of a product and you're like, ah, I don't want to buy it, you leave. And then for the next like six months, it, it's following you all around the web. Um, that function, the, the technology that powers that idea of a retargeting is effectively going away. Um, again, kind of a good thing, less annoying perhaps. Um, or it's at least changing in scope in a way that it's going to be much more complex. So for marketers, that's actually a huge challenge. Like our ability, if somebody hits our website or sees a blog post or watch it or listens to watches a video or whatever, um, we now have one shot at getting them to subscribe and give us their email address. We can't retarget them and get them to come back and try to earn that trap, earn that conversion again. So in this next chapter of marketing, the most important currency be, has always been the email address, will continue to be the email address. But then leveraging that sort of relationship to understand how a brand is engaging, how, how an individual, how human is engaging with our brand through content marketing, through event attendance, through again, virtual or in-person, what have you. And so we have to basically be able to instrument our thought leadership motions, our evangelism motions to collect subscriptions and then to be able to understand how um, an individual member is kind of moving through our thought leadership. And by doing so, again, since it's not a rented metric, like, you know, a thousand followers or, you know, 16 likes, all that, that's all good and important as a leading indicator, but not being in the space where I would imagine from an evangelism perspective, you might say, I can't connect likes and follows to revenue. And that's a hard thing for me. And so, I think those are all important leading indicators to get the owned relationship developed. I would say step one is how many subscribers did I drive based on my speaking at that event or delivering that piece of content or whatever, that's sort of your first touch. And then again, if they are within your own audience, you actually measure how many people read the thing or attended the event and then what happened. Um, and you can start to see an attribution model forming 
because you can build it on owned land, not building it and inferring it and guessing in these rented channels, which we've, we've now spent you know a generation of marketing doing. And a lot of technology has been built to try to infer and guess, is that impression of an unknown anonymous visitor the same account that ended up buying? And we're like, I don't know, but maybe. And for CFOs and FP&A folks in 2023, I don't know and maybe won't, won't cut it. Um, so that's why I'm super excited. I, I, I think that, you know, we're certainly trying to build a lot of evangelism on our own around this broader idea, trying to shout it on the rooftops. Do you know that third party cookies are going away very shortly? What are you doing to build your, your first party audience? Um, you know, try to be kind of that, that voice in the wilderness. But beyond that, um, we're building technology to help power that as well. And so that's kind of where we're of, of two minds right now, one part evangelism, one part product uh, people trying to, to bring this to market. Yeah, it's very clear. I mean, you, you've articulated the problem pretty well here to the degree that uh, that you can talk a little bit about the solution side of it, because I think anyone who's paying attention at all, um, and again, uh, tons to watch and read and hear at audienceplus.com. Um, yeah to go deeper onto the problem um, and to get a sense of where I'm going now is kind of this media company concept yeah. uh, that I think a lot of anyone who's paying attention is seeing this uh, language or hearing this language more often. Um, break that break that down a little bit and make yeah. dumb clear um, <laughs> how that how that serves this idea of creating more direct engagement and more zero party and, and first party yeah. Uh, data. Yeah. So Media companies are real interesting proxies for us of companies that have had very similar headwinds, were maybe a generation or two ahead of us, and they've developed strategies to help build and monetize an owned audience. And I think the best solution, the best way to picture the solution here is the way they perceive the marketing funnel. For them, there's three stages in the marketing funnel, rented, owned, and monetized. And I think that's a helpful construct for us because I'm not suggesting like stop posting on LinkedIn or Twitter or anything. It's actually quite the opposite. That's where our audience is and we need to be there too. But we need to reframe what we're trying to accomplish on these rented channels. Much like SEO and others, we're trying to drive people into an owned relationship. And again, for the for the in the consumer media space, that's called a subscription. We don't call it subscriptions in B2B. You call it like sign up for a newsletter or an opt-in to our marketable database, these like really inhuman kind of you know things. Um, but as we get folks to subscribe, there's an exchange of value happening um, that is rooted in relational context, not rooted in commercial context, at least initially. And so you can imagine like just by doing that, you're going from something like, uh, at least in the B2B SaaS space, a one, one to one and a half percent conversion rate on your website to about a 10% conversion rate. So you can 10X the amount of people that are wanting to hear from you when you're not trying to explicitly sell them on the first date, basically, right? So um, where consumer media picks up from there is selling premium content to their subscriber base. So they might have like free content and then a premium content. They might do events. They might have courses. They might have all of these other things, which by the way, you should, we should do under the, the leadership of, under the branch of thought leadership and evangelism. But for most companies, we have a product that we're selling. And so important to clarify, we're not trying to become media companies. We're trying to become like them and learn from them and some of the tactics that they've developed. So by then looking for signal within our own audience, 
we can kind of get a sense of who's ready to buy and or who wants to learn more about innovation on the technology side of, of this problem set. Um, and then by doing so, the, the good news is those leads have a higher propensity to buy bigger deal sizes and actually the lifetime value is much better because they're again that relationship or that initial relationship started in an exchange of value and not a transaction so um so i actually think this is actually the best way to sustainably grow a business moving forward um but it requires a bit of a shift and so you know we're finishing we're not revealing too much about the product quite yet but i will say you know we need to sort of rethink the the architecture of the web. It's a really big vision, actually, where we're sort of like building relationship into the earliest kind of stages of how an audience is acquired all the way through how a customer is served and, and supported um, throughout their journey. Awesome. I look forward to getting a, a clearer picture of that yes. big vision uh, in yeah. due time. Uh, so when yeah, I think when most people think media, they, they, they think uh, probably shows, right? Yep. Video, audio, et cetera. Um, I think there's plenty of familiarity there, but not necessarily in this context per se. It's like, yeah, of course we have a YouTube channel and we do this, that, and the other thing there, uh, or we have a podcast and we do video off the podcast, et cetera. Yeah. Um, give me your take on, and this will be a little bit redundant, but I think uh, we maybe haven't, it's just something I'm interested to hear from you on like yeah. very explicitly, which is um, why, so, so the characteristic there is that it's human expression, human embodiment of the ideas, values, yeah. struggles, et cetera. Like, um, speak to this kind of person to person, you know, I, I'm, I may be binging or I'm consuming, you know, weekly yeah. as it comes out on some, you know, regular cadence or whatever. Um, talk about, cause, cause I think this is part of the shift. It's part of the relational. I think it's part of the B2H again, it was, yeah. and you said it earlier, make content that the that, that Google will read and rank high, et cetera, um, is how much a part of this shift is of this relational shift is humans expressing the idea, humans connecting, humans yeah. um, hearing from other humans uh, with faces, voices, personalities, enthusiasm, yeah. tone, concern, all these, uh, just the yeah. richness of the human experience. Like what's the, what's the relationship there? Like the human in this whole process. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's several aspects to it. Um, first, we, we we spoke a lot about the emotional people buying things emotionally, and some of these mediums just lend themselves better to emotional communication or just human connection. Not to say blog posts are going away, no one's going to buy books off the shelf or anything. That's not true. But sometimes it's easier, to your point, hear tone to hear kind of you know, um, the, these nuances in communication on a podcast or a video or, or what have you. So I think that's the first bit. Second is that there's an inclusivity kind of aspect here from of how do people consume information? Um, how, and in what mediums are they better learners or what have you? And so thinking about our content as sort of multi-format actually helps lend itself well to people who are, you know, explicitly, you know, hey, when I'm at the gym, that's my only time away. I'm making this up from my my computer or you know I have family responsibilities so I need to plug the headphones in and listen that's my that's my space where I learn if your brand isn't building for that um you're missing a, a wide kind of swath of an audience who who could very well you know consider themselves members of your community and audience um I think those are the two components um you know that that come to mind I mean in general uh I think the third bit maybe might be generational where we think about Gen Z and folks that are coming, you know, after us, 
they like all the content they create is on this thing, uh, on the phone, right? And they don't really place a huge emphasis on production value. They place it back to our earlier point from an evangelism perspective, authenticity. And so our ability to create short form video clips and be able to connect with folks that way as well. Um, it's just this major transition that is happening as this, this generation gets into the workforce. And so I think that's kind of pushing the media agenda as well. Um, so I think just in the past, what's been tough for companies, it's a lot of this stuff is just hard to measure. When we put a lot of work into a podcast and we push it on Spotify and we get like, you know, 15,000 listens, you know, an episode or whatever, that's amazing. It's like a huge, huge achievement, but very hard in the B2B construct to come back into the office and say, and I can firmly say, if we didn't do this podcast, like the, this is the specific these are the accounts and the companies and the customers that were driven off of that episode. It's very difficult to do that, uh, if not impossible. So I think, you know, the sort of infrastructure shift that that we believe, you know, is, is needed to kind of help power this is really going to help unlock the value of media for, for companies. So exciting. I mean, a lot of what we talk about here is, you know, certainly anecdotal evidence and collecting anecdotal evidence. Hey, you know, that giant account just signed that two year seven figure deal. Well, you know, here's something that they said back channel to me about that session that we did together, you know, with right. me and the CSM or like whatever the case may be. It's, it's some of it's anecdotal. Um, some of it is, uh, it is quantified, but you know, to your point, some of it is a little bit vanity. And by vanity, I don't mean to discredit it. I just mean to say, it's it's a signal, but it's not the thing, you yeah, know. Sure. Um, and so, we, so some of the language you've, you've used on this, we've used on this these episodes before is like evidence rather than proof. Like here's, yeah. here's a collection of evidence. Yeah, is totally. totally. Evidence compelling enough in this you know challenging economic time when valuations are pressed. All this, like, no, it's not. So I'm really excited about where this is going. Um, Get really practical for me. I'm sure you're talking with a lot of uh, other founders, certainly a lot of other executives. Um, I'm sure as someone who has written a book with the title category creation, people have asked you, these types of people have asked you, you know, should I be creating a category? Do I need evangelism? What's your advice for a, a leader or a founder or an executive who's asking about these things? What are a few characteristics to say, yes, you should spend more yeah. attention and time thinking about this stuff? Yeah. Um, let me separate that into category creation and then evangelism, Please. Okay, good. media, all, yep. all of that stuff. Category creation, if you could not do it, you should not do it <laughs> because it is a long and painful journey. It's expensive. And especially within this kind of macroeconomic climate is really difficult, but it's also, so for many companies, that's your only option for audience plus there is not a competitor in the market that we are saying we are them. We're going to go and steal market share from them. So our only way through is to evangelize this new idea. And a lot of companies are like that. Gainesville was like that with customer success, you know, and, and there are so many others. So sometimes when you're early in the company building phase, like you find that category creation is your only way out. And the good news is it's arguably one of the most fulfilling ways to go to market because of the human centricity, because of the evangelism, because of all of those facts. But if you are building a product that is a better mousetrap than an incumbent, and you can do it better, look at Zoom and so many of these others, they've done just fine without creating a category. So that aside for a second, the idea of, of 
creating an emotional connection with an audience, with a member, with, with, with a community, facilitating the growth of, of a community, developing content and media that enriches and educates and inspires and all of these things. Fundamentally, like without, if you do not do that, you will not be in business in 10 years. Like it's that big of a deal because that's how people are in are buying things that's how they're discovering brands and and building trust and again relationship with them and they're making these purchasing decisions based on that so that is very much if you are if you are investing in that now and your competitors aren't should be a huge accelerator in building this kind of competitive moat around your company um so so from that perspective i would encourage everyone listening if you're not to to get started to to define your why your brand strategy your brand purpose um to build a to, to find an evangelist that can go out ahead of the company and start speaking and gathering and and engaging and then bringing that feedback back to the company too by the way it's not just for this one directional kind of thing um creating content that is not just expressing the why but educating on the how and getting people to giving them the tools to to actually go and do this mobilizing advocates and, and customers within the community that can go and say the thing too. One of the most rewarding things for me, we're only about three months into our public journey with Audience Plus, seeing people post and say, the future of, of, of marketing is owned media, or it's all about owned audience building, or all these things it is so fulfilling <laughs> three months in. And I don't know that we can take any credit for it, frankly. Now, to your point with evangelism, it's very hard to have evidence versus proof kind of a thing. But when you start to see that signal, um, you know you're on the right track. And I, I'm I'm convinced that this is like gonna go from this fringe side investment that marketing teams or companies do to like central to how we go to market in in this next chapter. Um, so that's my sense. If you if, if you don't if you can't if you can get away with not creating a category, all the power to you. But all this other stuff is like central. To building a company in this, and especially uh, in uh, in a year like 2023, so good, really well said. I absolutely agree. I think the tension in um, in measuring you captured well in the book around the two funnel approach, like evangelizing the problem versus you know evangelizing the product or or talking about selling, teaching, etc. Um, yeah. That's a tension that is a, another reason to pick the book up and. Um, I don't think we have time to go into this idea of the various places you might find your evangelist, but, um, or, or the type of person to do this work, no matter what you call them, you could call them yeah. a creator for that matter. Yeah, so right. I guess, give me a quick take on that. Like, obviously there could be someone inside your company who is ready to do this and you just need to like set them free and send them off on this mission. Certainly you could find some of those early adopters who are out there. I guarantee there's someone out there right now who's been beating the media company concept drum for some period. Yeah. And it's a matter of let us find them. Let's get in conversation with them. Let's understand whether or not we share values and perspective on this stuff and then bring them in at some level, right? Yeah, it doesn't need yeah. to be a formal agreement necessarily either. It could just be sure. um, friendly advocacy and support and you're going to prop them up and they're going to prop you up. And it's like just this mutual uh, admiration society that is yeah. <laughs> beneficial. Um, yeah. Talk about approaches to, um, I guess the next step then, uh, you know, putting someone into this, Who's going to lead this charge? Yeah. Well, I think there's a, actually I wrote a, a piece of content on this. I think there's different sort of 
ways to staff evangelism. But I think that, you know, the language around evangelism has some connotation that maybe a creator doesn't. Um, I think finding a great evangelist is someone who I think has the career history that has earned their influence, if that makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. Influence didn't come from an overnight success, might have, but I think more likely it was years of of brand equity developed and relationships developed as an operator um, that is of immense value to a company. Um, In many cases, they do have followerships as well, which is helpful for the company in, in the sense of not just being a creator, but actually being a distribution engine as well for actually getting the message out. And, and I think the good news for the brand there is, well, you've built trust with an audience that you own who has over, you know, however long you've been doing this, looked to you as a thought leader. And that's something that is very hard for a company to buy. And so by hiring a chief evangelist, we're sort of like, you know, short-circuiting the process of building our own brand equity and our own um, influence within this market. So, you know, in terms of finding them, I think to your point, it's like who has been beating the drum and then who has the the wood behind the arrow, the the credibility to go and and um, evangelize on, on our behalf. And can we be bettered as a brand by having them on RW2 or however, or involved in the company in some way? Um the creator stuff, you know, I, I think is sort sort of a different conversation of another set of value. But you could have a, I mean, you just follow TikTok, some of the crazy things now. You could have like a 22-year-old first job ever at a tech company, and they're just producing short-form video content on TikTok. But they just like know how to do it natively in a way that this 36-year-old can't figure out. Like if there's even the, the millennial to uh, to Gen Z gap is like pretty crazy in terms of being able to create content that is authentic and entertaining and delivers a message impactfully. So if you have like anyone up and down the org chart, um, whatever they sit, an SDR to, you know, a, a VP who is just like really good at creating content, they might've built their own followership or maybe not. Uh, I think that's a valuable asset too, as we think about kind of the, the media company kind of vision. I think there, there, there might be different in a way. Like I think uh, an evangelist can work very closely with a marketing team to book the speaking gigs, to um, get a book published with Wiley or whoever, whatever publisher you're, you're working with. Um, there's sort of like a, um, a, an integration there where a creator can kind of go off and create, <laughs> let them go and do that stuff. And by the way, it's not a perfect sort of, you know, the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. And so you might be an evangelist that actually happens to be a great content creator yourself. And you might've figured out what I can't on TikTok and these other things. And, and I think that just adds even more um, value to, to your efforts and to the impact on the company. Yeah. Good line, fair line. And of course it's a blurry, messy one as almost all yeah. lines are. We like to keep things clean, but life isn't that way. Yeah, but I really, totally. I like the distinction that you drew there. And I certainly see that in in previous guests, including, of course, someone like Dan Steinman, who built the customer success organization at the customer success yeah. Yeah. software company and then evangelized customer success um, uh, after operating and building that whole org. So uh, this has been awesome. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate your time so much. I appreciate your vision. I'm excited to hear more of it um, in the, uh, gosh, I guess we're only a couple months out from 
the broader release probably at this point. Uh, before I let you go though, Anthony, fun question for you. What is something you find yourself evangelizing in your own personal life or perhaps someone close to you has maybe accused you of evangelizing? Yeah, good call. Um, I've got a funny one and a serious one. Uh, funny okay. one for watching on video, I'm a Laker fan and this season has been very difficult to be a Laker fan. And so I find that uh, outside of our random uh, championship in the bubble in what was that 2020, it's been kind of a slow goings to, to rebuild that team. And so I'm a pretty uh, shameless evangelist of Lakers basketball, um, even when they give me every reason not to be. Um, but I think that the one other bit that I think I'm, I'm really excited, and I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at this, but something I've been very passionate about is this idea of um, maybe to, to use the uh, theological terminology further, not just the evangelism, but the discipleship, the idea of like, not just sort of getting the message out there to the world, but how can we like really invest in our teams and our um, um, customer relationships and our um, family relationships to better ourselves and, and sort of do that self-actualization thing. For me, that's kind of come in this, in the context of how do we create margin in our lives to be our best selves at work, but then also, you know, not burn out and not do it at the cost of our families and the, our kind of passions and the relationships that, that matter most to us. And so, you know, we've been, one of our values at Audience Plus is uh, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry to find areas in our, our lives and in our work lives that are causing us to be on the fast track to burnout. Um, and how can we program things, operationalize things within our culture to prevent, help prevent burnout and help um, bring our families and loved ones and network and communities in on what we're trying to kind of build together. So that's something that like, you know, I learned a lot from my CEO at Gainsight, Nick, Nick Meta. And um, it, it's, he's been a huge influence on my life. And so something that as I think about sort of the legacy side of entrepreneurship and building a business, I'd love to help evangelize that broader idea and get more folks to not think about business as a zero sum game. So good. Uh, one of your first team members, a longtime uh, friend and uh, previous team member of mine, JK, when he started yeah. talking about the way this was getting going and some of the values and even hearing you on some, some podcasts back, even back when you were at front um, and you sharing some of your personal stories and approaches this is clear. Um, and we even heard it through this conversation, this kind of wholeness relational approach yeah. pro human really appreciate it, really respect it. Wish you continued success. I definitely have a lot to learn from uh, what you all are doing. I'm so glad we're able to have this conversation. Maybe we'll do another one here before the calendar year is out, yeah, uh, just on the progress there, because it is super relevant to the folks that listen to the show and certainly to the guests who've been on it as well. So uh, appreciate you so much, Anthony. Uh, where can folks follow up, learn more? Yeah. Best places to subscribe on audienceplus.com. We, you know, we produce content regularly. We have a weekly newsletter where we're sharing what we're learning We have exclusive content that we do just for subscribers. Um, so I think that's the best place uh, to connect. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Anthony. Appreciate you. Thank you, Ethan. Appreciate it. That wraps up this episode of Chief Evangelist. Thank you for joining us. And thanks to Ringmaster Conversational Marketing for helping bring these episodes to you. With any thoughts or questions about the Chief Evangelist role, message me on LinkedIn. I'm Ethan Butte, E-T-H-A-N-B-E-U-T-E. For show notes and more of these conversations, visit chiefevangelist.com.